Welcome to All Saints Community Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. We are a community of worship and formation on mission with Jesus. Our desire for you as you listen is to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit as we read the scriptures and to be mobilized to actively bring God's kingdom to the earth. For more information on who we are, visit allsaintsokc.org or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at ASCCOKC. So Acts 13, 1 to 12, we're going to be looking at Antioch, the church at Antioch again. We looked at it in chapter 11, but we're going to look at the church again at 13, and we're going to see that this church has many characteristics. We're going to walk through them, but it's a spirit-led church. The Holy Spirit is leading them and guiding them, speaking to them, and they're responding in obedience. And then they are a church that's spirit-led and on mission with Jesus. So this would be one of those passages that we would take part of our mission statement from, looking at a church like Antioch in the first century, saying, we want to be like that church. We want to be led by the Holy Spirit, not by human ideas or programs. We want the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus to lead us, and we want to serve on mission with Jesus So we're going to be looking at a number of characteristics, features of this Antioch church. But I mentioned last Sunday that I was going to tie up the loose end of chapter 12. So I'm going to do that very quickly. We looked last week at the contrast of the king of the apostles, the Lord himself, versus a tyrant king, Herod. And we didn't end by looking at Herod's death, and so I thought we could do that very quickly. You can just look at Acts 12, 20 through 25, and what ends up happening here, and this is going to set the stage for chapter 13, but Herod ends up dying. He's beheaded James, and he's put Peter in prison, but the Lord delivers Peter supernaturally, and then At verse 20 and 21, we find Herod giving an address. He goes to Caesarea, a strategic headquarters, to negotiate with two port cities there. And they needed food, and so they were willing to meet with Herod. And what ends up happening is Herod gives an address. And I wanted to put this slide up here so you can see this scene. These are cities that are 2,000 years old sometimes even more than that. And look at this ancient amphitheater right there off the coast in Caesarea. actually had the opportunity to go there many years ago. And you can see that red star. That is most likely where Herod would have given his address. And we know that Herod was a very pompous, arrogant person. So he showed up in this amphitheater packed with people, and they were there to declare his greatness because they needed food, a bunch of bootlicking going on there, a bunch of sycophants. But he showed up, and we know from another historian that he showed up actually in a silver robe, kind of David Bowie style. It was literally made of silver. And so the sun was gleaning off of it, and he looked like something that slithered out of the sea, and he began to speak with great arrogance and pride. And the people began to declare that he was a god. And I had mentioned that, if you remember, 
an angel appeared to Peter in prison and poked him. And the word is, he struck him in the side to wake him up. And I had mentioned, remember that word. Well, now an angel shows up and strikes Herod, not in a good way, not to wake him up, but actually struck him dead because the people were praising him. If you'll put that slide back up there, this amphitheater full of people declaring that he's not a man, but he's a God, and he just drank it all in. He soaked it all in, did not give glory to God, and so he was struck to death. And Josephus, this Jewish historian of that period, actually talks about his death as well. So now we finish chapter 12. And there's something in this. You know, we could look at an ancient king like Herod, and we could say, man, what an arrogant guy. He wouldn't give glory to God. And he was judged. The Lord took his life. But I just, as I was working through that passage last week, I just was struck by the fact that we should all give glory to God. And that oftentimes, the Proverbs actually says this, a person is tested by the praise that's given to them. So if the enemy can't get you through insecurity and demoralization and all, he will actually send people to praise you over and over again and stroke that ego. And so I want to encourage us as a church to even learn from this, always give glory to God. If someone says something to you that's wonderful and affirming, take it, say, I'm grateful for that, but don't let it go to your head. And that's the lesson that we learn from something like this. We always, we humble ourselves before God. Anything good that happens in us and through us is for his honor and glory, right? And the scriptures say that no flesh, no person will glory in God's presence. And so there's something for us as God moves among us and does great things and we're just getting started. God has great things for this church and we're gonna see God do glorious things. We all have to get on our knees and say it's all about you. We're grateful. There is not a single person here that deserves any credit whatsoever. All glory, honor, and praise goes to Jesus. Amen? So I do. I mean, there are times people will say something, and I'm like, man, that I felt really good. I'm grateful. And then another person comes, and before I know it, I'm thinking, okay, time to get on my face. Before the Lord, you get the glory, you get the credit. So it can be a very practical thing. Let's look at uh, Acts 13, 1 to 12. Basically, this passage can be divided into two things. Verses one through three, we've got Barnabas and Saul being commissioned, sent out by the church. And then verses four through 12 are about Barnabas and Saul and John Mark preaching the gospel on an island, Cyprus, not far from Antioch there. I'm gonna read it and then we're gonna make some comments and we're gonna see this marvelous church gives us a model for the kind of church we wanna be. Man, we could talk about it all day. I assure you I won't. We'll be done and we'll have communion. But I just found myself lost in this passage, saying this is a first century church. They are brand new. It's in a pagan city. And yet, look at what God is already establishing within a few years through the Holy Spirit. These people didn't even have the scriptures accessible and recorded for all of them. 
Some of them had it. Some of them couldn't even read and write. This was a work of the Holy Spirit raising this church up to be a powerful beacon in that part of the world. So Acts 13, 1 to 12. And you can listen for some of the characteristics and then I'll come back and comment on them. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod the ruler, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there, they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John also to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they met a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man who summoned Barnabas and Saul and wanted to hear the word of God. But the magician, Elymas, for that is the translation of his name, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now listen, the hand of the Lord is against you, and you will be blind for a while, unable to see the sun. Immediately, mist and darkness came over him, and he went about groping for someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was astonished at the teaching about the Lord. Friends, this is the word of God. How's that for a story? If you weren't tuning in, that should wake you up right there. There is some wild, strange stuff in the story of the early church. And again, what we've been seeing is Acts 1.8 told us how the whole book was going to go. Jesus was going to clothe his disciples with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he would send them out as witnesses from Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And this chapter right here becomes a pivot point. This is one of those moments when the latter part of Acts 1.8 begins to happen. They are going full on into the Gentile world. So we're going to look at that. But look at some of the characteristics of this amazing church. The first one is found in verse 1. This was a church, an early church that was devoted to team ministry. You see it, don't you? Right there at verse 1, there were prophets and teachers, and then there's five people named here. The first time we encountered prophets was in chapter 11, but we saw in chapter 2 that Peter preached about the spirit of prophecy being poured out on all flesh. And most likely, these folks here that are at the church at Antioch are established, seasoned, prophetic people that the church trusts. 
They're the ones who explain and exhort and sometimes even speak about the future. They foretell the word of the Lord like Agabus did. You remember back in chapter 11, he predicted that a famine was coming so that the church could be prepared and so that the church could send money to help the poor in Jerusalem. So we've got prophetic people there, part of the team, and then we've got teachers, and they're working together. Isn't that interesting? Anybody heard stories about wild, woolly-eyed prophets who show up at churches and cause problems, and the pastors and the teachers have to continually harangue and tell them to keep it in, in check? Well, these folks, from the beginning, were getting along. They were submitting to one another the prophets were actually well pastored. And so you had both of them devoted to the word of God going forth with great power, the teachers doing their thing, teaching the scriptures and explaining, and then the prophetic people announcing and declaring the fresh word of the Lord. It's a model for us, right? Prophetic ministry in the local church should be under pastoral care, and the prophets and the teachers should work together Right there, from the beginning. It's a beautiful model. Then he goes on. This is even stunning as well. We were talking about this yesterday. Amanda and I were on a hike in Arkansas and looking for stuff to talk about with Mia in the woods. And I started saying, you know what? The early church had diversity down. And then I guess it got screwed up along the way. But look, these are five people. And there were many more that were gathered. But these are five that were singled out here that demonstrate the unity and the diversity in the early church. Look there, the first is Barnabas. We've encountered him. His name means the son of encouragement, and he's showing up regularly with the apostles, doing the work of an apostle, serving, helping. We've got Simeon, who is called Niger, and he most likely was a dark-skinned man from North Africa, and his name means black. So we've got Jews and this black gentleman from North Africa. Some even say that he could be Simon of Cyrene. If you remember in Mark 15, the man that carried the cross of Christ, it's speculation. There's really no hard evidence for that, but it's kind of a beautiful idea, isn't it? Then we've got Lucius, His Greek name is Lucius of Cyrene. He's a Roman, Latin man. Then we got another Jew, a guy named Manaean. His name means comforter. And this guy, look at what the text says there. Manaean, he's the last of the five there. He was brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch. This is the Herod of the Gospels. Are we getting tired of hearing about Herod's? little bit. Now, which one is it? Well, this was back to the Herod of the Gospels, the one who beheaded John the Baptist and would have had Christ stand before him in trial. But this guy grew up with him, and now he's part of the church. Luke gives these details, and they're full of meaning, right? So he's got a message here. This guy grew up. He was either a foster brother or an intimate friend of Herod. And so I think he's trying to get us to see the contrast here. Herod made certain choices, terrible choices, and Manaean actually heard the gospel and responded to the news about Jesus, and his life took a totally different pathway. And here he is now, 
among the leaders in the church at Antioch preparing to launch people out on a gospel mission. That's beautiful, isn't it? But the point of it is this early church knew how to have people from all kinds of diverse backgrounds, and yet they were deeply unified. So it is a model for us, people from all walks of life, all backgrounds, socioeconomic, ethnic, all of it, all that you can think of it, it comes right out of the Lord's heart to unify us all in Christ. Amen? So just when you think that culture has the answers or we need to listen to the news or read the latest book, I say we get back to this book and we see that the Lord actually has the answers from the beginning. We discover our roots in a church like Antioch. They were doing it right. The Holy Spirit was leading them guiding them and directing them. Look at verse 2. Not only was this church devoted to team ministry, but look, they were absolutely worshipful. They were God-focused. Their attention was fixed on God. Someone might say, well, isn't that the point of all churches? (laughs) All churches should be worshipful and God-focused. That's true. But unfortunately, you go to some churches and they seem to not be that God-focused. It's more about looking good, sounding good, making sure the service is slick, everything runs properly. Not here. We want to be absolutely focused. This whole, all that we do is focused on pleasing God, delighting Him, moving His heart. And frankly, we don't really care what, how that comes across. You with me on that, right? I mean, we are here for the Lord Jesus. And we want to learn from the early church. We want to be fixed on the face of Jesus. We're here for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this early church was doing that. They were worshiping and they were fasting. Look at it. That word there, worshiping, in some versions... It says ministering to the Lord. The New American Standard says that. It's actually a word called liturgeo. Some of you have heard the word liturgy, right? Speaking of Catholic or Orthodox Church or an Anglican Church, this is where it comes from. It was a first century word that meant to minister to the Lord. And it comes out of the life of the synagogue. When the priest would go in, he would minister to the Lord to the Lord. He was there to serve the Lord before the people. And so the early church takes that word and says that all Christians are actually called to minister to the Lord. Think about that for a moment. You and I, when we gather together in one another's homes, when we gather together, maybe when you gather together with family or friends and you're focusing on the Lord, you are called to minister to the Lord thought about that much? You're called as a priest to stand before him, to focus your attention on him, to read his word, to pray, to serve one another, and to be there, like we were singing this morning, fully surrendered to him. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that the Lord needs anything from us. Do you think the Lord needs anything from us? We minister to him because he's deficient in something. If that's the case, we should go home now. If I'm going to church to give 
something to God that he doesn't have. That is not a biblical vision of God. God has all that he needs. He is overflowing with power and glory and kindness and goodness. And so to minister to him means I'm standing in his presence, giving attention to him. I'm receiving from him and filled with gratitude and worship. Hear that subtle difference there? So if we think that we come in here and Lord, I'm gonna give you my best and you need something from me and nah, it's not the case at all. We receive everything we have from him and then we're able to offer that back up as a sacrifice of praise. You see that subtle thing there? Paul says in Romans 12:1 that we're called to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. That's what the early church was doing. They were standing in his presence and it's interesting, they were fasting, the text says there. That means that they were abstaining from food and saying, Lord, we love you so much. We're so committed to this that you're more important than food. It's a radical idea, isn't it? I'm already thinking about lunch. It's about 15 till. Fasting for most of us is not an easy thing. If it is for you, you're blessed. You need to pray for the rest of us. Lay hands on us and give us that gift. But for most of us, not eating is difficult. Your stomach talks to you throughout the day. You fantasize about pizza and sandwiches and salads and all those things. Anybody else in here? Fasting is tough work. But the early church did it. And there is a way for all of us to practice fasting wisely and within reason. Some of us may have eating disorders, and so we need friends and others to counsel and guide us. There's a way to fast from things on your phone, but the point is the early church did it. They were worshipful, God-focused, and they fasted. Just want to share something. Jake, in the last week, my son, 15-year-old son, can't believe he's 15, he had an encounter with God, and I asked him if I could share this, but it deals with worship. This dude is on fire. He has been going in to, usually when he is moving in to take a shower, he brings his portable speaker and he's blasting worship music, usually about 10 o'clock at night. So if you want to go to bed before 10, that's not going to happen. But while this was happening and he was worshiping the Lord, interestingly enough, ministering to the Lord in the Lord's presence, which can happen anywhere, anytime, the Lord spoke to him and said, Jake, you are a worshiper. And it went right into his heart. And then, a few days later, he had a vision of a well. And he saw people flocking to this well by the hundreds and the thousands, and he said millions eventually, and they were drinking from it. And so it's interesting to see there, the Lord tells him, as he's worshiping, Jake, you are a worshiper. That's a big part of your identity. And then in that place of worship, he begins to hear from God. The Lord gives him a picture, an image. Friends, this is what the early church did. They worshiped. They got into God's presence, mixed in a little bit of fasting, said, we're so hungry for you. We're not even going to eat for a window of time. And then the Lord spoke. Look at the second part of verse 2. A third thing about this church is they are directed by the Holy Spirit. They're a spirit-directed people. 
and they listened. Look at the second part of verse 2b. It says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. Friends, the early church listened to the voice of the Holy Spirit, and this is the kind of people we want to be, right? We want to listen to the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Holy Trinity. Unfortunately, in many circles, many churches, the Holy Spirit is kind of locked away in a back room, right? Ah, the Holy Spirit stuff, the gifts, the activity of the Holy Spirit can get messy, So we're just going to kind of tuck that away, keep that back there. Is that the model that we see with Antioch? No. The Holy Spirit was speaking and guiding and directing, and there is no locking the Holy Spirit away, or maybe we're going to do Holy Spirit stuff on Wednesday night, but not when we gather together. The early church was mature, even at this stage listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit. And look at what the Holy Spirit says. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ says what? Set apart what? From me. So even from the beginning, it wasn't set apart from me for the mission. These guys, it's me. So even here, the text is saying, Barnabas and Saul are called by the Holy Spirit to be with the Lord to be with the Holy Spirit, and then he sends them out. Just looking here. We may have part two next Sunday. Stuff's so good, I don't want to blaze through it. So look, they're set apart. They're consecrated to God, separated from the world and distractions. One commentator says this, I love it. Mission is inaugurated by God himself. And this is one of those moments. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is saying, set apart from me, Barnabas and Saul, for the mission that I have called them on. Friends, the whole book of Acts, if you remember, flows out of God's missionary heart. This is God's deal. You're a part of God's mission. I am. This is not up to us. It's not up to some committee our multiple committees or organization. This is the mission of God that you and I get to be a part of. Is that glorious? Greatest mission, greatest cause, greatest purpose on the planet in human history directed by the Holy Spirit. And this is why here at All Saints we talk regularly about reading the Bible and learning to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. All right, I think that we are gonna do part two next week. There's several more about the church at Antioch. How does that sound? Sound okay? We can hang out with the church at Antioch a little bit more and that way we'll have plenty of time for communion here. So I encourage you, I invite you, maybe during the week to reread Acts 13, one to 12. I kind of sense the Lord wants us to linger with this picture of the church at Antioch so it gets deeper into our spiritual bloodstream. We want to be this kind of church. I do, do you? We want to be this kind of church that has teams like crazy, has people from all walks of life all over the world gathered together 
ministering to the Lord, full of worship, God-focused, so hungry for God that we're willing to give up certain things, directed by the Holy Spirit, and we'll tune in next Sunday for the rest of it.